The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And I could not have a more wonderful guest with me today, Atina Diffley. She is or she was an organic farmer from 1985 to 2008. She has since become an author, a writer, a speaker. Her book that we're going to be talking about today is called Turn Here, Sweet Corn, Organic Farming Works. And I just want to let our listeners know that I could not put this book down, and that rarely happens. So, Atina, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Melinda. And I have to tell you how much I love your program. I'm so honored to be on it. I listen to it every time I run. Oh, that's it, so nice. It keeps me going better than any kind of rock and roll song would for running. Oh, that's great. Well, we're going to keep up the rhythm, I know, today. I have so many questions to ask you about this book because it's so important. I think it's one of the most important books that our listeners can be reading today because I think we're facing an environmental crisis, a farming crisis, and many crimes against humanity, which if we're paying attention, we see them. Um, and we'll get into some of those and see if you agree. But I have to first ask you why you wrote this book. You know, the loss of our first farm was literally burning a hole in me. And I didn't know how much grief I had. I knew I had grief about it. But it wasn't until I started writing those scenes and they just poured out of me and I just sobbed. And when I first read the bulldozer scenes to Martin. He and I just sat and the tears ran down our face. And we read them over and over and over again mm-hmm. until we could read them without crying. And we should let our listeners know that this book, Turn Here, Sweet Corn, Organic Farming Works, is billed as a love story and a legal thriller, but it really tells the story of your farming life. So when you talk about the first farm and that farm being bulldozed with your children as observers, it was quite shocking to the reader as well. Yeah, and I received so much healing. Like, it actually has a purpose now Mm -hmm. because it teaches people. And what I'm able to show in the book, what I experienced when our farm was developed, they came in with bulldozers and they removed all of the life. Every tree, every bush, every blade of grass, they even took the living topsoil and sold it. So there was no life remaining, and we witnessed a complete ecological collapse. Mm-hmm. And we had continued to grow on land that was immediately adjacent to the land that was bulldozed, but we couldn't grow on it. We couldn't manage our pests. We couldn't manage our disease because there was no beneficial habitat. There was no life to be our allies as growers. And when it would rain, there was no life to take in the water, so it ran off. And we all learn in school that we are dependent on the ecosystem and that we need the trees to purify our air and all those sorts of things that we learn, but they're just intellectual and pictural. And when I experienced it, I really got it at a heart level, how utterly dependent we are upon nature and land mm-hmm. and what a huge responsibility we have when we use it for food production or for any other use to take care of it. Mm-hmm. There are several repeating themes in this book. 
And one that really struck me, and I don't even know if you consciously were aware of this, but on many pages you state, it feels good to feed people. I was made specifically for this work and the act to feed people, of growing food. That food is the force that sustains us. You say again, I want to feed others and stay in relationship with the natural world. And I find that to be a reminder of how important feeding people is. And I I fear that maybe we take this for granted. We do take it for granted. Here it is one of the most fundamental needs that we have right along there with air and water. And we place criteria for our food system on it like inexpensive, this most fundamental item of our lives. And we think price is one of the most important criteria as a society. I will tell you that of all the hundreds of people that have worked for us over the years, that is one of the main things I've heard from them at the end of the year about how they felt about their summer on our farm, that it felt so good to have such a noble purpose in growing food. It is a noble purpose, and I think that is a beautiful way to describe it. Well, I want you to read something that you want to read, but I am going to jump the gun here, and I'm going to jump to page 242. And I want to read something about that. You say, we feed people and nourish health. I love the joy the food brings to the eaters. You also talk about how you are recognizing that your hands are touching the food that is ultimately going into the mouths of others. And so you saw that in the people that were working on the farm too? They got that connection? They got that connection. It's so profound. Mm-hmm. And that connection, as profound as the connection is between the eater and the food, think of the connection between when we eat that food, the cells in that food become part of the cells of our body, the elements. And this is, to me, the most profound thing, that our bodies are made up of the exact same elements as the plants and the trees and the insects. We're made up of the same stuff. Mm-hmm. So that is the most profound relationship we can have. It seems like perhaps that relationship has been taken for granted. I don't think people even recognize it is a relationship. Yeah. But every single human being has a relationship with the land that feeds them, mm. to the food. They have a food relationship with that land. So the decisions they make directly, it's not indirect, they directly affect the land's use and the life on that land and the soil. So if we don't think about it and we just buy whatever's convenient and cheap, we may be affecting land in a very negative way that if we actually realized it and understood it, we would be horrified. Yeah. Tina, before our interview, I gave you a little heads up that I wanted you to pick something out of this book to give our listeners, you know, one of those messages from the book that you wanted them to ponder. So I want to give you a chance to pull something out. What I'd love to read to you is a piece when we come to our new farm. So after our first farm was lost to development, we were able to purchase new land and transition it to organic. And this scene is from one of the first times we came down to see that land. Coming down the driveway is like going through a gateway to paradise. The soil in the neighbor's fields is so black, the gopher mounds look like giant chocolate drops. I feel like I am hopping from mound to mound, being led into a new life. 
We come up to our property line, and the land lies before us, like a book open on display, waiting to be read. The soil is glistening, wet still from the snowmelt. Eureka! We've found it. We stand just looking, like we are perusing the rest of our lives in the lay of the land. This soil is ancient. The mineral parent rock once sat naked. Time and water, sun and cold, broke the rock into stones and the stones into dust. For a very long time, the earth sat aging. Then the life process started, and living soil was created. Thousands of years of plants have left their condensed energy and captured time stored in the organic matter. Farming in present is a relationship with the past. Imagine if the soil had a heart and we're walking all over it and talking about it. What is this like for the soil? It doesn't get a say. People walk on it, talking, making our human plans like it is ours to open up and do as we want. What was it like the first time to pick up handfuls of virgin prairie loam? What did it smell like? What happiness did they feel? And if soil was virgin, what is farming? Do we choose a love affair? Or is it a course taking? Yes, it's a beautiful passage, and it really helps us think about the connections that we have with the land, what we do with it. I remember, too, when you spoke about finding this land, and you had looked for a long time to find a new farm, a place to be a farming family. And you described the big oak tree on this land, and that was your first tip that the soil was good. And I should let our readers know that your farming life is occurring in Minnesota. So it's a harsh climate. But it's so wonderful in the summer. Yes, it is. You know, it's also important that readers know how much joy and happiness is in this book because we talked about the bulldozers and the grief and the sadness there and the seriousness of our agricultural practices. But the book is more joyous than anything because it's a celebration of life and the renewal of life force, the resilience of life. Life wants to heal and come back. So the love story is between you and your husband and, of course, your children, and then the greater relationships in the community and, of course, the love affair with the land and nature itself. And I thought of a couple of things that I wanted to make sure we covered. One was I was curious about Martin, your husband's family, and they're farming and the chemicals are coming into vogue, right? And the neighbors are using the chemicals. And yet Martin wants to know how farmers farmed before the chemicals became so prevalent. And there's a quote from his great-grandfather. He says, you're going to be dead a lot longer than you're going to be alive, so make your life count for something. And I, I love that. But how was it that his family and Martin himself chose to farm without those chemicals? You know, I don't think it was very uncommon, actually, when the chemical push really started. Because people saw that when you sprayed an herbicide, for example, or a pesticide, that things died. And farmers are all about creating life. and We work with life. So to spray something that caused death was not logical. Yeah. And the farmers are really logical, practical people. We have to solve just really f- simple problems every day without necessarily going to the store and buying a part. 
We're very practical people. And so that was very obvious at first. And then the whole shift of society and the way the agriculture moved just made it harder and harder for people to say no to the chemical situation. And it made things easier. And as young people were leaving the farm and less were coming and staying on the farm, there was less labor, all that sort of shifted. But it wasn't that unusual for people to understand that it made no sense. Mm-hmm. And Martin was really unique, I think, for a young man in that he recognized that these old-timers in his community had very valuable knowledge. He really saw them as a library, mm-hmm. a living library, with information that would be lost forever when they died if he did not collect it. So he really spent his early farming years interviewing them and asking them to teach him things that they knew. So he has very like multi-generational information that has been passed down to many farm families. And this is true about a lot of the early organic farmers. Martin started farming in 1973 at a time when the rest of agriculture was racing in the other direction. And there he was sinking his heels and saying, I'm going to do this organic when everyone said it was impossible. So those early organic farmers really collected that information, brought it into their systems, and then brought in new ways of thinking based on observation and experimentation. They were really experimenters. And then they really shared that information with each other. So what we have now for organic systems really are a blend of information from the past and then observation and creativity from the 70s on, finding new ways of solving problems and creating healthy systems. So it's really quite fascinating in the sense that those 1970s organic farmers really bridged some old knowledge that's really valuable so it wouldn't be lost. Mm-hmm. If you're just joining us, listeners, we are speaking with Atina Diffley. She is the author of a terrific book, and I recommend it highly. It is a love story. It is a legal thriller. But it is also a story about love and life on the farm and with many sub-themes and stories about farming itself. And we learn about the soil and nature. And it's almost like there are ecological essays inside the excitement of the love story and the thrill of the legal issues. So the book is called Turn Here, Sweet Corn, Organic Farming Works. And I just want to say one more thing before we leave, Martin. Martin also studied organic farming in Europe, is that correct? Well, he went on a tour there with Elliot Coleman in 1976 or 7. Europe was about 10 years ahead. Mm-hmm. So he saw a lot of practices there that he then brought home and incorporated into his own system. So you know, he really had all these different teachers, the old-timers, the European systems, and then those organic farmers sharing all that information. Well, I think one of the reasons why this book is so important is because we are told today that organic farming can't work for you know the numbers of people that are going to be on the planet. And what I've learned from this book is that organic farming not only works, but it's the only way to feed the growing population. Well, and I have to say, it just makes me laugh because every organic farmer knows that it works. Yeah. The success we see on our farm is staggering. And I have to tell you that in a bad year, when we have drought or harsh conditions, consistently we have better crops than our neighbors. Mm -hmm. On a good year where everything's perfect, we run about the same. But when there's stress, our plants are so much more capable of handling that stress. They're healthier plants. So when we look at climate change and the erratic weather coming and the increased amount of drought, we need organic systems. 
when we look at the end of fossil fuels and the fact that the farming system we have is completely based on fossil fuel inputs, the fact that we are not jumping up and down and, and putting every penny we can into organic research and transitioning farms to organic is absolutely preposterous. It's our only option for the future. Mm-hmm. Well, we had spoken about the impact of genetically engineered seeds on the farm. And I'm trying to go through the book a little bit in order. We have to talk about the pipeline, absolutely, because that's the legal thriller part. But I also want to mention that what really got me into this book was I asked a question, and you told me to check a certain page number to find the answer. I was amazed at the hurdles that you have to go through as an organic farmer to prevent genetic engineered seed from contaminating your crops. And you and Martin are having this conversation and you're talking about the difficulties and you say, what what's going to be next? And Martin says, alfalfa. And you say, oh no, who would be stupid enough to do that? And here we are, we're looking at we GMO are. alfalfa. Yeah. Yeah, it's not logical at all. It's because it's myopic, it's reductionist. They don't look at the whole picture. And this is actually the biggest challenge, I believe, for people going organic and transitioning to organic systems, is it's a completely different way of thinking. We look at the world in a different way as organic farmers. We look at the entire picture, how everything in that system affects everything else. And we know we can't just do something like spray a pesticide and kill one insect without it causing a ripple effect on our entire system. So to change one's way of thinking when they've been a chemical farmer is really quite hard. And that is also a recurring theme in the book, that what you do to one thing in an ecosystem has ripple effects. And I thought that was a very important lesson. Because, Melinda, we're in the ecosystem too. So what we do to nature, we do to ourselves. And that isn't really obvious to a lot of people. They don't really think about that. Mm-hmm. But when we spray a pesticide in nature, we're spraying ourselves. Exactly. Okay, so you've got this wonderful new farm now, and you've created a new life for yourselves. And the production, oh my goodness, the pounds of produce that you are producing on this terrific soil is truly outstanding. You know, you talk about can we feed ourselves with organic farming, you're producing over 10,000 pounds. Let me find this. You're doing the math and you say, I calculate 133,440 moments of sweet corn pleasure, approximately 535,009 servings of kale, 50,439 servings of winter squash, and 2,413,115 servings of produce sold wholesale. You are feeding the Twin Cities communities with wholesome, organic food. I would say you're successful. That is success. But the real secret of the success or the real sign of success is the relationship with the customer. And that is what's going to be crucial to changing this agricultural situation, is that relationship with the customer. Every farmer needs that relationship. So as consumers, customers, whatever word you want to use, the most important thing you can do is have a relationship with the farmer that feeds you and make sure that they're growing the food in a way that you feel good about that relationship of yours with the land because it's your relationship with the land and the farmer is in a sense, I like to think almost of the farmer as someone you've hired to grow your food. 
Mm-hmm. And as the person who's hired that farmer, you have a responsibility to how they do their job. You're their boss in a sense. When you pay them, you're their boss. So you want to make sure they do a good job and think about what kind of farming they're doing. Mm-hmm. And that makes all the difference in the world. And then supporting those growers with the challenges that they face. As farmers face a lot of challenges, whether they're weather challenges, market challenges, political challenges, pipeline challenges, all sorts of them. And those relationships, they saved you from the pipeline that was proposed for your land. So let's tell the listeners about what happened. Yeah, after we got you know, on our new farm, after development, we transitioned to organic and uh, really put together a successful business. And during the 90s, we really branded our farm. And we told stories about the things we saw in our everyday life on the farm that were amazing. And by telling those stories to our customers, it really created an awareness and an education for them so that they had a personal engagement and personal attachment to that land. And the wellness of the land affected the wellness of their life beyond the food that they ate from it. So in 2006, we received a letter from Koch Industries. Some people call it Koch, Koch. it's K-O-C-H. It's one of the largest privately owned companies in the world. Uh, They're in crude oil, and they're one of the largest manufacturers of synthetic nitrogen. And they were informing us that they were going to be applying to build a crude oil pipeline and that our farm was in the pipeline corridor. And my heart just stopped because I already had been through it when we lost our farm for suburban development, and I knew what it meant. And I'm really, really embarrassed to tell you, Melinda, the very first thing I did when I got the news in a letter. But it's really important to talk about it because it's something that we all have, which is learned helplessness. (laughs) To change this around, we all have to just sort of give up our learned helplessness. But I ran down to the machine shop where Martin was working, and I waved those letters in his face, and I told him that someone wanted to put a pipeline through the farm and that he had to call them up and tell them they couldn't. And then I went into a half-hour-long spiel about what he should tell them. And he just looked at me and said, they put these things where they want. They don't move them. So you have all the answers. You call them. And I really didn't believe I had the power and the capacity to do so. And in retrospect, I look at that and I go, well, that was absolutely foolishness. I was so capable and I was so well-supported. And I started noticing a few of the pipeline case. We intervened as parties to the legal proceeding with the goal of showing in court that an organic farm is a valuable natural resource that should be protected as such and that the people in our community were receiving benefits from our farm that went above and beyond the food that they received from it. Even the people that didn't eat our food were receiving benefits. So we decided to show that in court, and we had several goals. One of them was to move the pipeline off of our farm where it wouldn't damage our fields and put it along in the road right away. And the second goal was to write an organic mitigation plan, which would have specific mitigation protections to protect the soil and certification of an organic farm. And Melinda, that part was a blast because we got to be educators and we educated the Department of Agriculture. They didn't really fully understand what organic was, but they were absolutely wonderful allies. And they said to us, why does it matter? Why is it different if the pipeline goes across your farm or conventional farm? How are organic farms different? Why should this farm be protected? And they listened And they got it, and they testified in favor of our organic mitigation plan and negotiated with the pipeline company for it. 
We educated the Public Utilities Commission also through the process of submitting documents to the legal record. And again, they got it. So that was just this really amazing opportunity. And the turning point for me when I really realized I didn't have an option but to fight it was I was reading the agricultural mitigation plan that was already in place. And I came upon that the MinCan Pipeline Company would not knowingly allow more than 12 inches of topsoil erosion. And to me, that was just unfathomable that they would think that was an acceptable condition for putting a pipeline through. And that was when I knew I just had no option but to fight this and really let go of any leftover beliefs that I wasn't capable of doing it. We will probably have to let our listeners read the book to fill in all of the details, but I want to commend you on your strength in fighting this pipeline for all of the right reasons. You've set an example for all of us, and throughout the book I'm thinking about community-supported agriculture where the community supports the farmer. But it's really the farmer is also supporting the community, and the community has thanked you for supporting you in the face of such adversity. 4,200 people wrote letters to the judge for this one farm. Mm -hmm. That was amazing to me. How well these relationships were there because we had fed them for so many years. Exactly. The most delicious sweet corn on earth, right? Is what everyone says. It's the most delicious corn on earth, I think. But I bet there's a bunch of other sweet corn growers out there that believe that too. And I'm sure in their community that's true also. Atina, what do you want this book to accomplish? I want to do two things. I want people to really understand that they have a food relationship with the land that feeds them and responsibility. And I want them to be empowered. I want them to understand how powerful we all are You know, Coke Industries is one of the largest privately owned companies in the world. You should have seen us in court. There'd be like 10 of their legal representatives on the side of the room, big men looking powerful in their black suits. And on the other side, there was me and my little tiny female attorney. But we had the people on our side. They had the money. And that's how we're going to change this, is a groundswell of people who say, enough, I am outraged, this is ridiculous. But we have to maintain our optimism, and people become defeated, feeling, and hopeless, and they think the corporations have all the power, and they don't. And so that attitude is so, so crucial. When we give up our power, we indeed become powerless. And we won't always succeed, even in our lifetimes, at some of the things we attempt to work on. But oftentimes those efforts are first steps, Think about things like women getting the right to vote. It took 70 years for women to get the right to vote. The women who started it weren't even alive at the time the suffragette laws passed. And when we start looking at it, I like to think of it as engaged optimism, where we don't let the challenges get us down and we just are cheerful to be engaged and thankful for the opportunity. I think that's a wonderful note to end with. And this book is inspirational, it's full of optimism, it's full of tension and love and emotion, and I highly recommend it. Atina Diffley's book, Turn Here, Sweet Corn, Organic Farming Works, please find it on the web at www.atina, that's A-T-I-N-A, Diffley, 
D-I-F-F-L-E-Y.com. Atina, I want to thank you very much for writing the book and for being my guest. Thank you, Melinda. It was really a delight. And I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri by Dan Hemmelgarn. Thank you, listeners, and thank you, Atina. <laughs>